Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I was waiting to see, now how will they graciously bow out, and neither of them did. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and I am joined today by my co-host, Nicole Martin. Russell Moore is out this week. Today on our show, voters make a statement in Iowa, Israel goes to court, and New York Magazine offers a practical guide to polyamory. Plus, Charlie Peacock is stopping by to talk a little bit about that and his new podcast. So stay with us. All right, Nicole, the first votes have been cast in the 2024 election, and it's pretty clear Donald Trump won the Iowa caucuses. Final results, Trump 51%, DeSantis 21, Haley 19, Vivek Ramaswamy. Despite his very effective strategy of going door to door and greeting everyone who came to the door with, debate me, came in fourth place. So, okay, where do we go from here? What did we learn in Iowa? This week, I think we've just been learning the same thing over and over, which is people will double down on what they believe to be true, whether or not that is actually true. And I think the hard part was seeing all of the outrage that happened from the results. There were reporters and journalists that were just outraged. There was a lot of, this is the fault of white Christians in Iowa. This is the fault of people who don't read. But it also, I think it's a good lesson again on what I'm now seeing is authentic gangster mentality. People join gangs because the killer at the top is someone they all give power to and credence to and respect to, and they want to be him. So I have ceased being surprised, but I do think there's a lot more underneath the surface. And my question, is Iowa just Iowa? Is that an isolated thing? Or is what we see in Iowa something that we are going to see in other states? My gut tells me this is a pretty decisive declaration that the race is over. Very clearly, Iowa wanted Trump and they got him. And the national polls and everything else are all leaning in this direction, despite some potential signs of life and, and paths you might see for other people. But if I was going to put on, for the sake of those listeners who would love to see an alternative to Donald Trump in the 2024 general election, what are the signs of life? I think the one thing you can point to and go hey, you never can tell, is turnout. So you only had about 100,000 people show up to vote in this election. It's way down from 2016. Now, there was a blizzard going on, but you also have this drumbeat from Trump, from Biden, from everyone across the spectrum that this is the most important election in our lifetimes. And only about 100,000 people came out. I pulled up the numbers here. 2016, Ted Cruz won Iowa. He had 28% of the vote. Trump came in second with 25% of the vote. Notably, he said that Ted Cruz stole the election. And then Marco Rubio came in third with 23%. 
Trump's total with only 25% of the vote, Trump's total in 2016 was 45,000 votes. His total this year winning was 56,000 votes. So he's up 11,000 votes from 2016, right? Which when you think about it, like not terribly impressive, but it's also one of those things where you, you look at the numbers and you go like, when people say, oh, who do we blame? Well, let's blame white evangelicals. Let's blame uneducated voters. Whatever the demographic is that you want to blame. At the end of the day, there are 1.5 million active voters in the state of Iowa. About 700,000 of those voters are Republicans. So you had one in seven registered Republicans showing up to vote. If the problem is uneducated voters and educated voters need to show up, then why didn't they show up? If the problem is educated voters, whoever you want to blame, it doesn't matter. Nobody came out to vote for this. And so whatever sense of urgency people want to import into this election, I think the biggest takeaway is the fact that nobody came, that the numbers were so significantly down. And if I'm hearing you correctly about the numbers from 2016 to now, is it a fair assessment to say that Iowans probably had a bit more faith, confidence in Trump's competitors at that time than they do now? Or is it just different times, different scenario? Yeah, there certainly was a willingness to entertain other candidates. There certainly was an eagerness to go out and support different candidates. There was a lot of talk before the election that there was going to be a surprise the day of because DeSantis's ground game in Iowa was so good. He spent over $100 million in the state trying to make something happen there, and nothing comes of it. So I, th I think the lack of voter enthusiasm is probably a significant sign of just people coming into this year going, man, there's a lot of despair. But it didn't translate into people saying, we want to vote for the alternative. And it's really remarkable when you think about who the alternatives in this election were. Haley is definitely running as like the classic Reaganite kind of Republican. DeSantis is saying, I'm Trump without the drama. That's his message. And then Vivek is saying, I'm Trump, but I'm 30 years younger with a lot more Red Bull. They definitely could have said, we want something new if they wanted something new. There were several flavors of it, but they didn't. I would be interested in seeing a behind-the-scenes look at the DeSantis campaign. They're watching the screens. They see he's not even close to touching Trump. And yet, despite all of the conversation that's happening in there, the speech comes out and there is no... I'm done. There is no, not even for Nikki Haley. I was watching. I was waiting to see now, how will they graciously bow out? And neither of them did. There was a fascinating article that came out on a website called The Messenger. The article is called The Inside Story of How Ron DeSantis Got Crushed by Donald Trump. And my friend Dan Darling actually sent it to me. And he goes, this is a must read. And it, it really is because there's a number of things that you see right away as you read the piece that are just raging red flags as to, oh, this is why the campaign didn't get off the rails. The one that stuck out the most to me was the fact that the oldest person on his campaign was Ron DeSantis. So you had a lot of young, energetic people who were excited about what was happening. Again, you can just look back at the Ron DeSantis campaign and a year ago, he was in a position where he actually had a lead in national polls. And then from the moment the campaign actually started on Twitter with audio feedback and weird noises and, hey, is this thing on? And just like from that moment forward, 
the thing just stunk of doom and it never recovered. It blames a lot of it on the candidates and kind of his inner circle, but it also blames it on this. We're going to do it differently. We know how this is done. We don't need the old guard around. Meanwhile, Trump ran a very conventional Iowa campaign. He went to all the counties. He did a lot of stump speeches. He ate a lot of pizza. But yeah, going from here, I think that the challenge for Trump right now is just don't be crazy, right? The only thing that's going to stop Trump is Trump. This is a truth social post from 1259 a.m. this morning, all caps. A president of the United States must have full immunity without which it would be impossible for him, her to properly function. Any mistake, even if well-intended, would be met with almost certain indictment by the opposing party at term end. Even events that, quote, cross the line, close quote, must fall under total immunity or it will be years of trauma trying to understand good from bad. There must be certainty. Example, you can't stop police from doing the job of a strong and effective crime. This is still the same tweet. You can't stop the police from doing strong and effective crime prevention because you want to guard against the occasional rogue cop or bad apple. Sometimes you just have to live with great but slightly imperfect. All presidents must have complete and total presidential immunity or the authority and decisiveness of a president of the United States will be stripped and gone forever. Hopefully this will be an easy decision God bless the Supreme Court. <laughs> what do you make of a statement like that? <laughs> I can't believe that's real. When we talk about what's happening with Trump, we have to remember we're never just talking about one person. We are talking about a cultural bend toward a certain type of posture that shows up in Trump, but it is showing up in every place imaginable. This posture is showing up in the church when pastors say, essentially, I'm above the spiritual law, and if I were ever to do something wrong, all I have to do is apologize and repent. It's the same type of very self-aggrandized posture. And it's as Russell has said on our shows before, there's a power of shamelessness. You have to vacillate between the doom and gloom, this represents everything in the world is falling apart, and the, okay, this is just Iowa. But it's not just Iowa to me, and it's not just a tweet, and it's not just a statement from a narcissistic guy. This is a sentiment. And then when you hear supporters, they agree with this posture. There's that. But there's also, this is consistent with, they, they made this argument in court. The judge in court asked him, so you're saying that the if the president ordered SEAL Team 6 to take out his political enemies— he would be immunity from prosecution from giving that order. And the, the lawyer basically had to say, yeah, that's what we're arguing with this. Which, if that's true, like, what would Donald Trump think? And I'm not suggesting this happened, but what would Donald Trump think if Joe Biden gave orders as the president of the United States to take out Donald Trump? I think Donald Trump would have an objection to that. I would have an objection to that. It's, a, it's just an utterly irrational and preposterous position. And the other thing that I did think is, I think there's a couple things that are going on around the support for Trump. One is people like Trump. And in this moment where, it's funny, Russell isn't here today and we're going to quote him the whole time, but he talks a lot about how people like this indulgent posture where it's like, oh, aren't we being transgressive? I think there's something about voting for Trump that you're sticking it to the libs, that people actually like that. But what I also think is they're looking at the national polls and they're seeing that there's a lot of polls that show Trump and Biden neck and neck or Trump even ahead by a few points here and there. And they think, look, we can nominate Trump and he's going to beat Biden. 
are people going to look at this and go, because I think stuff like this is going to make the suburbs where Trump's vote was very weak in Iowa, which he has to win if he wants to win in the fall, in November, Trump's weak in the suburbs. Stuff like this is going to make it even weaker. Moderates don't like this stuff. Independents don't like this stuff. None of them are cheering this stuff on. And so those folks who right now are looking at it and they're going, I don't like where my grocery bill is, and I don't like the state of the world, and I don't like what I see happening on college campuses, and I don't feel like the president's doing enough to answer these questions. I don't think those people are going to look at a tweet like that and go, there's the path to normalcy. There's the path to restoration. They're going to go, no, that way lies chaos, and I'm not doing it. So then this is where I think the evaluation of values and morals comes into play because it isn't, I don't think people are voting for him saying, I love what he's about. I think they're voting for him because they hate what the Mm -hmm. other side is about. And the grievances of the other side are so great that they find themselves voting for Trump. It leads them to, I'm not voting for Biden because I don't like what he's doing. I remember there was a reporter that was talking to some young urban children of color. I would call them children. They're probably in their 20s, asking them who they're going to vote for. And they were emphatic. Yeah, yeah, we're going to vote for Trump. Like, where is this coming from? But again, I return to this kind of gangster mentality. This is American gangster. This is Godfather. This is Scarface. I think you're totally right about the the gangster thing. I haven't thought of it in those terms, but that makes a lot of sense to me. So if we had to like look at this and go, is there a path forward for these characters? To me, Nikki Haley's path requires being able to puncture the armor of that sort of nothing touches me. I'm Teflon. Everything bounces off of me. Yeah, I got convicted of being liable for sexual assault, but I just had to write a check. I didn't go to jail. Same thing with a lot of these other things. What would stick to Trump right now and be a real problem for him is if he loses New Hampshire. I just think the fact that he would walk out of New Hampshire with an L next to his name, number one, I think it would make him utterly unhinged. I can't imagine him handling it well. It would be interesting to see. I think for her, her only shot in New Hampshire is, and again, it's not a great shot, but her only shot in New Hampshire is it's a state with a lot of independents and a lot of moderate Republicans The independents can come over and vote. And then the governor, Chris Sununu, very popular among independents and very popular among Democrats, is a Republican, has endorsed Haley, and is going around the state on the stump for her. People have described it as what she's doing is the John McCain 2000 strategy, which was all about New Hampshire. He knew he wasn't going to win Iowa. He was putting everything into that. Bush was this sort of candidate of destiny juggernaut. And if he could just put a chink in the armor in New Hampshire, he had a chance down the line. The question is, at this point, can Haley go to South Carolina, her home state, and have a win? A lot of people think she can't. My take, though, is that like if she were smart, what she would do when she got to South Carolina is she would make every stump speech about calling out Donald Trump to clarify his position on abortion from here. Because even though she's considered squishy on this by a lot of conservatives— I bet he's way squishier on it than she is. And he doesn't want to be nailed down. And he knows that it's, he's afraid of it being a a losing issue nationally. But if he's not willing to say, I want to take the next step with those Southern evangelical voters, I think that's a wedge that she could actually peel some of them off from him. What I think you're going to see with DeSantis is, I don't think he's going to suspend his campaign. I had initially thought he would. In a sense, I think he's running the same way he's run this whole time, which is more or less, 
waiting for an exogenous event to take Trump out. And if he can just ride through and just survive from here, he doesn't have a prayer in South Carolina. He doesn't have a prayer on Super Tuesday. But if he can show up at the convention with some delegates and Trump has some problems or Trump is convicted of something or something else happens, he wants to be the heir apparent as Trump without the drama. It's the whole future of the conservative movement. I guess we will see. Yes, we will. All right. We will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. We're back, and I am actually really looking forward, Mike, to talking to you about what's happening in Israel, given your expertise, and especially this miniseries that you're working on, which has been really good. I'd love to get your perspective on what is happening with Israel going to court on January 11th and on January 12th, the International Court of Justice held public hearings for the case that was brought on December 29th by South Africa against Israel for alleged violations of the Genocide Convention during its operations in Gaza. This is an interesting situation. Very few Americans would even understand what that looks like or what it means that one country is bringing another country to court. But can you unpack for us several things? First of all, why South Africa? Second of all, what does it mean that South Africa is alleging these types of violations against Israel? Yeah. There were remarkable speeches made on both of these days. The prosecution spoke on the first day, and then Israel put up defense the second day. I think what's probably the most helpful is to pull back a little bit and look at what's the geopolitical background of this situation. So The Hague, the International Criminal Court, there's no real authority there except the authority of the consent of the nations that take part in it. So one of the things that was actually remarkable about this was that Israel decided to show up for this thing. And this kind of thing happens a lot. They could have very easily said, listen, we're in the middle of prosecuting a war. We'll deal with this later. South Africa could have come and made its case, and the deliberations could have gone on, and The Hague could have made a judgment one way or the other, and Israel could have said, we'll respond to this later, we'll defend this later. But they sent this sort of crack team to show up and make a defense, which I think says a lot about Israel's confidence in its tactics. And that was very much a feature of what they laid out on that Friday speech. Here are the things that we do to mitigate civilian casualties. Here's how that compares to the way other nations conduct these wars. Here are things in all of this that are fairly untrue. The other thing that's important to know in the background of all of this is that we're living with about 50 years of history 
in which there has been a strong movement inside the UN and inside the sort of global community to frame like the idea that Zionism is racism. Like that was an idea that was endorsed by the UN explicitly in the 1970s. And there were Cold War tensions around all of this. The Soviet Union was behind a lot of this stuff. There was a lot of Marxist language and propaganda attached to it. And so it was around that time, you think post the Six-Day War, 1967, that's really when like the rise of Palestinian nationalism becomes a thing, where it's really not until after 1967 that Palestinians are asking for their own state. The territories we know now as Palestinian, the West Bank and Gaza, were Jordan and Egypt prior to that. And this idea of we want independence, it's not about necessarily, it, it was always about getting rid of the Jews, and it, and it remains that case with Hamas explicitly to this day. But the idea that this conflict was about freedom and liberation for the Palestinians really didn't come into being until around the time of this movement. The reason a nation like South Africa is involved in this is because we've heard a lot about colonialism since this war started. And you've heard a lot of rhetoric about Israel as is a settler colonial state and all of this. South Africa has a long history with colonialism, and they experienced the absolute worst of it. Colonialism is, I take my army and my people and I occupy your country, I subjugate you as a people, and I take your resources to the global market or to my home state or whatever, and... I profit off of them. It creates this two-tiered society. It's terrible for those who are subjugated to it. It was terrible in South Africa. It was terrible in Algiers. It was terrible in India. Much of the 20th century was the history of the undoing of that kind of colonialism. The Palestinian national movement adopted that language in the 60s and 70s. And that was accepted uncritically in the midst of a lot of this stuff. But here's the thing. Israel was never a colony in that sense. Yes, it was part of the British Empire, but it was never, you know, unlike South Africa, it's not like there were mines there where the workers were being almost slave labor conditions, harvesting things and sending them back to the home country. The Jews who settled in Israel purchased their land. They purchased it at a premium oftentimes. And so there's a lot of revisionist history wrapped up in identifying Israel with colonialism that goes unquestioned on the global stage, and it gets amplified and beefed up by nations like Iran, who is the head of the Human Rights Council inside the UN, by nations like Russia, who, because Israel is our closest ally, has a vested interest in discrediting Israel on the global stage and all the rest. So the reason South Africa ends up being the one doing it is complicated by 60 years of history that feeds into that, including their own story. And what's interesting in terms of how it all went down in the ICJ was that they really just dealt with the particulars of the war, the particulars of the accusations. But I think that broader context is really important to understand. Why are the parties lining up the way they're lining up? I think one vantage point of the court case is that it does highlight this is a significant difference between narratives. And how you frame the why in this case has everything to do with how you judge the actions. It strikes me, though, that there will be people, and maybe even listeners, who would say, okay, I hear you. I hear you, Mike, saying that essentially Israel is an oppressed group. They cannot be the colonists. They cannot be perceived as the one in power oppressing those without power. 
But then there, you have the South African argument and those who are supporting the rights of the Palestinian people who would say, yes, but this is now becoming eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And I think what you saw in the South African statement is a defense of that narrative that says, yeah, but at the end of the day, this is no longer defense. This is genocide. Mm-hmm. How do you draw the line between defending and taking out terrorism and taking out an entire group of people because the terrorism is embedded within them. Yeah. So there's a lot to answer that question. I would say a couple of things. One is, first off, modern urban warfare is always horrifically destructive. And one of the things that happens inside urban warfare is what they call spider webbing, right? So a modern military fighting an insurgent force or a a guerrilla army or a terrorist army or whatever they're looking at a city block and they're saying, okay, in that house over there, there's eight terrorists, so we've got to blow up that house. They warn the neighbors, we're going to blow up this house because there's terrorists inside. And of the eight terrorists in there, six of them get out before they blow up the house. Those six guys show up at the next building across the street and same process again. And that happens over and over and over and over again. And you get the spider webbing effect of taking out an entire city block one building at a time because of one or two targets at a time while you're trying to move the civilians out of the way as you do it. We did it in Iraq over and over again. And if you look at some of the photos of the devastation in that war, they look very similar to the devastation that we see now in Gaza. That's not to say, see, everybody does it and it's okay. And that's not to dismiss the level of suffering. It's horrific. But what I think critics of Israel in this war don't understand is that this outcome was Hamas's design. This is what they expected to happen. This is what they wanted to happen. They knew that the Israelis could not let the status quo go after October the 7th. Because when you think about what the citizens who were living on the border experienced, the idea that the state could just tell people to go back home without some sense of security that the threat had been eliminated or significantly de-escalated. They knew that they were coming into Gaza, and they embedded themselves in schools and hospitals and all of this civilian infrastructure and dug tunnels under neighborhoods and apartments and everything else. They did all of this deliberately, in, in a sense, baiting Israel into it, saying, I dare you to come after us because the world is watching, and what the world is going to see is crying children, blown up schools, blown up mosques, and they're going to say, look at these monsters and the things that they've done. There's almost a catch-22 for Israel because they can't do nothing, but the only way they can actually begin to eliminate the threat in Gaza is to bring a war to Gaza that brings this level of destruction. I would urge people who are concerned about the welfare of civilians and the rest, listen to Tal Becker's speech, listen to the defense because they walk through all the various steps they take to try to mitigate and protect civilian life. And it's extraordinary. It's steps that few modern militaries, if any modern military in the world, actually takes those kinds of steps. That doesn't mean, again, if you're concerned for the welfare of Palestinians, if you're concerned for their welfare and independence and their liberty and their long-term, if you're concerned about things like settlers in the West Bank and right-wing radicals inside the Netanyahu government, those concerns are incredibly real and valid and and worthy of being talked about. But they're a non sequitur from 
10-7 and the response to it in many ways. So for those who are tracking along with this, what are the next steps in mm-hmm. an international justice case? What happens next? It probably is going to take a long time before there's a solid result. One of the other ironies of all of this coming from South Africa is that anybody who's followed the Israel-Palestine conflict closely is familiar with something called the Goldstone Report. So after the first Israel-Hamas war in 2009, the Palestinians accused Israel of targeting civilians, and the UN formed a commission to investigate this. And they put this team together. It was led by a South African litigator, a legal scholar, whose last name was Goldstone. It was named after him. And after a year-long or more investigation, they released this Goldstone report that basically said, yeah, Israel committed war crimes, and they deliberately targeted civilians. And if you read the executive summary of the Goldstone report, it's very damning. It looks very bad for Israel. But then people began to look at it and looked at the investigative process. And one of the things that was very obvious right away was they would come to Israel. They would say, why did you blow up this house? And Israel would say, we blew it up because there were terrorists inside it. We'll double check our work. Then they would go to Hamas and say, were any terrorists killed in this house? And Hamas would say, no. And they'd say, okay, so you targeted civilians. And that was it. They literally took Hamas's word throughout this report. So much so that in 2014, Goldstone himself, the man who led the commission and wrote the report, published an op-ed retracting it. Because by then, Israel had issued their report, their investigation, where they documented each one of their findings in each one of these cases. And Goldstone basically said, look, if we'd known then what we knew now, we would have never accused them of war crimes. I don't believe Israel targets civilians and all the rest. These things take forever to suss out. But what you have built into the global ecosystem around this is this knee-jerk reaction. Again, because of, I think, some of this anti-colonial ideology, there's an argument to be made that some of it's because of anti-Semitism. Another one of the sort of famous South Africa interactions with Israel is when Jewish refugees in the 20th century were looking for places to go. The prime minister at the time of South Africa said, we don't have any Jews in South Africa, and we don't have an anti-Semitism problem in South Africa, and I don't plan to have one in the future, so we're not letting any in, right? There's long history to this stuff, to the way Jews are handled on the world stage that, that affects all of this. So my expectation is that this is something that's going to take a very long time, and that regardless of what the results are, you'll probably end up having more of these kinds of accusations and more of these kinds of responses from Israel. Last night, I went to Frankfurt, the capital, and watched a screening of the film that you may have heard of, People, our listeners may have heard of, this 45 minutes of edited footage of Hamas atrocities from October the 7th. You watch this 45 minutes, and it's utterly devastating to just watch death rain down the way it does, and to watch the sort of exuberance and joy of the people who are doing the killing. And we're not talking about soldiers fighting soldiers. We're talking about little kids and teenagers and kids in their 20s that were at this music festival. And it's unbelievable. And when the film ends, one of the things they say is they say, this film accounts for the deaths of 139 people. That's a roughly 10% of the people who were killed on October the 7th. And when you get to that moment at the end, you're so exhausted by what you've witnessed. It's so draining and heartbreaking. And then when you realize this is just a fraction of what took place, 
it's numbing. And during the screening of the film, we're watching this thing and we can hear screaming in, f- from the parking lot, free Palestine from the river to the sea, like all the chants that you're used to hearing in all of these different places. And it was particularly the from the river to the sea chant that got to me because I'm hearing that and I'm watching people whose ideology is from the river to the sea, killing Jews, children in their pajamas. It's unimaginable. And I think where this all comes together is back to this idea that, yes, Hamas has a militant Islamist ideology that says, we want genocide. The anti-colonial stuff is not morally neutral. This isn't just a mistaken idea. Yes, colonialism is bad and is terrible. But when you look at the intellectual sort of bright lights of the movement, people like France Fanon and some of these others, what they embrace in overthrowing colonialism is revolutionary violence. And revolutionary violence, this sort of Marxist notion of violence, like whatever it takes to usher in the next phase of history, that's the language of Palestinian liberation. That's the language of people like Leila Khaled, who who was a, a NPLO hijacker from the 1960s and 70s, who, who gave a speech celebrating October 7th at a human rights conference in South Africa on October the 14th, right? So there's just stuff like that where I just feel like that larger context of the way people are seeing this through these ideological lenses, it's real easy to march around and say colonialism is bad. We want to set the Palestinians free from the river to the sea. What's more difficult is to acknowledge that behind those kinds of statements are often an implicit or an explicit embrace of the kind of violence that kills women and children in their beds. This is always a space where I feel the need for lament and grief as we talk about what's happening real time. But I'm just grateful that you were willing to unpack it for us and to share with us. Of course. We'll be right back. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. All right, we are back. Joining us for this next segment is Charlie Peacock. Charlie is a record producer and the host of a new CT podcast called Music and Meaning. Charlie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, guys. Nicole and I were texting about what to talk about on the show this week. And shortly after we had made some decisions about what we were going to talk about, this article dropped from New York Magazine. Their cover story 
which was about a practical guide to polyamory. That article was a field guide and glossary to how polyamory works. And then there was this larger story in there called What Does a Polycule Actually Look Like? A polycule is the cluster of people involved in a polyamorous relationship. The story is a reported piece by a journalist named Priyanka Mantha, who's the VP of Communications for Vox Media. We are introduced to a couple named Nick and Sarah. Nick says, non-monogamy is really just designing the bounds of what we want in our relationship and what we're comfortable with. For Nick and Sarah, the relationship design looks like this. Nick and Sarah are married. Sarah has had multiple other relationships while married to Nick. Currently, Nick has a girlfriend. Anna, who has a husband, Alex. All the names in this story have been changed to protect their privacy. And Alex has other people with whom he has explored his desires. Nick has noticed more of his friends testing it out. And he mentions how many of them wind up hooking up with each other. Not everyone's there yet. It gets sloppy, says Anna. I bet it does. Anna, I, I bet it does. Nicole, what was your reaction to reading this article? So first of all, I think the one thing that New York Magazine got right was the selection of the cover. On the cover, for those who are listening, are a group of cats. And they're all like doing what cats do, just hanging on each other. And my first thought was, that is a true depiction hmm. of what is now called polyamory. It is an acknowledgement of what some people would call our nature, which is to just allow your body to do whatever it feels willing and ready to do. And Judges 2125, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking as I was reading it, this makes room for the kind of resurgence of understanding the beast within you in a way that I would say underscores even more the importance for a gospel that I would argue is hardly being preached in our churches. When I read the article, I paused and thought to myself, when was the last time I heard a sermon about ethical sexuality in the church? It struck me as such a story of lost people like people who are lost and looking for meaning. And there's a point in it where it describes how the relationship went from semi-open to more open, where honestly, your heart kind of breaks for the guy in the relationship because he doesn't want to necessarily, but he doesn't want to lose her. And so you have the sense of these people who are lost, but don't want to lose connection, but they don't know who they are. This Woman Sarah says, I feel really deeply connected to the journey of truth of my own soul, and I believe a lot in self-awareness and self-knowledge. That's something that's always undulating and changing for me. This is a person who's trying to figure out, who am I? What is my life about? Exactly. Yeah, I think with a subject like this, as with many of these that would fit into this category, that a conversation about it can go wrong so quickly. And to me, what the gospel does for the person who professes to be a follower of Jesus is it sets you up to begin with empathy and to be really open-hearted to the people in this story. And so I would start there because, you know, I have a lot of things in my story that don't make any sense where I've been incredibly confused about things and made really poor choices. So that's the starting place for me. 
But then I also have to immediately move into my own experience, let's say my experience over these last 50 years, and the fact that I have lived long enough to live through multi-generations. And then I'm also a music historian and a lay theologian. I've had just enough seminary training to be dangerous. And like on this week's Music and Meaning podcast, we look at Augustine, and Augustine listens in to our top 40, which is so connected to this conversation that you all are having in terms of the heart cry of the person, regardless of what century they're in. And Augustine described his polyamory as rotten rutting, which is basically a way of saying rotten sex, using other people for your own benefit. So what the polyamorous folks have done is that they have done what a lot of smart people have done over the ages is that they put intellectualism, they front-loaded issues like empathy and honesty and direct communication, this the whole idea of the ethical part of it, right? And yet, because I've lived through these multi-generations, I can't help but also say, isn't this just a really well-thought-out version of promiscuity? Doesn't it just really hit all the same things? Because honestly, when I was a teenager, which was in the late 1960s and early 70s, I was coming up in the last really huge cultural shift about human sexuality, the one that turned everything topsy-turvy and set the stage for everything that has come since then. And people felt the same way in what you read, Mike. People felt so much like that. They just didn't use the same language. See, the language changes and the sophistication of it Mm -hmm. changes. And the idea that like, we have to be honest people, we can't be in hiding. If this is really the impulse of our heart and mind and body, then what's going to make it ethical is that we just speak it out loud, is that we're in these pods, these communities of people who speak that out loud. I'm not sure about that. Having led with empathy, I also wanna end with realism. And I think that if Andy, my life partner, were here with me, we would both say, this will not end well. There was a response from a writer that I really like. He's not a believer, but he's a really thoughtful sort of character on the left. His name's Thomas Chatterton Williams. What he gets at is that this isn't new in terms of our impulses, right? Like non-monogamy is as old as civilization. But what he said is what's new about it is this way of creating an identity around it in an effort to alleviate your conscience. And he's being a little tongue-in-cheek. He said, in a very real way, polyamory and ethical non-monogamy is far more narcissistic and selfish than the old-school mode of simply having an affair and shouldering the pain and tumult of all of that without forcibly making your partner and or kids complicit, e.g. the Park Slope mom. It's so infantilizing to want to make it therapeutic and holistic and do-goody. Again, I don't think he's actually advocating adultery with this, but he's saying this is a way of getting at that impulse, which is so destructive to your family, which is so destructive to 
relationships and all the rest of it. And again, that stuff doesn't mask well. You can feel the, the sort of cracks in the facade at, at various mm-hmm. points in this article. And what I think he's right about is we do this with all sorts of things in our culture now. It's like this thing that is a problem, I'm going to make it who I am, and you have to accept it if you want to accept me. I remember when Sex and the City first came out, the whole premise was that women have the capacity to be engaged with multiple partners and to remove their emotions from such engagements to make them, quote, more like men. This idea was men aren't the only ones who have cravings. And so therefore, women can do this and we can do it in a way that allows us to preserve who we are, preserve our emotions, and to just go about this bodily entanglement without any touching on the soul. That's where I think we have got to do a better job of teaching and training on sexuality in the church because there is a connection of the body and soul. And when I do engage with all of these bodies, there is something that touches my soul. I like what you're saying, Charlie. You can't just throw it in the category of the world is losing their mind and Jesus is coming back soon, which is true. But also, in order to really properly speak to these issues— You have to have a place of compassion. You have to be able to set some realism there. And I think that's going to be easier said than done. And this is aided by something that we all interact with every day, and that this is the most branded, story-coached world that we've ever known. And everybody is learning how to make, in a sense, these micro-epistemologies that are well-branded and, and so you've got a compact story that a journalist can research and get the top 10 rules for behaving in that micro niche. Do either of y'all envision this being something with the sexual revolution and particularly with the LGBT rights revolution in the last 20 years, those issues have come to the church and become major series of questions. Do you envision this also coming to the church and being something that the church is going to have to wrestle with in similar ways? I think it's here, isn't it? We're talking about it. And I think what this does is, for those who are in the church and operating in this way, it either legitimizes, see, this is normal because everyone's talking about it, or there's another layer of conviction that silences. Let's just not tell anybody. It's so much easier to do in the church because we don't have the same life-on-life discipleship as we've had in years past. So you can actually go to church and no one can know a thing about your life. Not Mm -hmm. one thing, unless you choose to tell them. There's so much work to be done. There always is in every generation. Nicole, I don't know if you know this about my history, but in 1991, I put out a recording called Love Life, and it dealt with the issue of marriage and, and fidelity and the great challenge it is to stay committed to one person and how a person will grow and change over the years. And when my record company at the time, Sparrow Records, shipped thousands and thousands of units of product out to a distributor in the Northwest, they sent it all back to the record company saying, when Charlie Peacock starts making Christian music again, we'll start selling it. Wow. And the reason was is that it had a song on it called Kiss Me Like a Woman, and it was the chorus was like, kiss me like a woman, I'll love you like a man. And it was just a song about fidelity and faithfulness and sexuality. So we've had this problem 
for centuries. And it is yeah. as contemporary today as it was in the story I just told you. Oh, it reminds me of you know, another great Augustine quote in terms of how the age of the problem. One of his prayers in the confession, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, before we wrap up today, Charlie, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on was we've been releasing your podcast now for a couple months, and we want to make sure people who listen to this show hear about it. Oh, thank you. At the heart of it, it is very personal because in some ways it's a way of showing every other week through the podcast medium how I became an artist hmm. and how integrated the whole world is into my artistry, how integrated my story of following Jesus and what that has come to mean is integrated into my understanding of music and its meaning and role in the world. When I was a very young follower of Christ, I was fortunate to really meet the pioneers of this whole thing that you and I are doing through music and meaning. So I got to meet uh, Steve Turner, who's a, a British writer that maybe some of the listeners will know, has written uh, amazing biographies of Johnny Cash and uh, Jack Kerouac and many others. He's really just an expert on all things Christianity and music. And he was a part of a group of people in Sacramento over 40 years ago now who mm. were really the pioneers that they would put out these vinyl albums they would take on a subject of transcendence and prayer and music, and then they would go interview the Grateful Dead hmm. and talk to them about, so what is your thinking about like when people are lost in these sort of transcendental states, dancing for hours and hours on your music, right? And they would just tease out all of the ideas and the meaning behind that. And then they hmm. would do the same, and they were some of the first people to look at pioneers like someone like a T-Bone Burnett, right? Who had in the early days been involved with Dylan and sort of straddled that fence of, am I in the Christian world or am I in the mainstream music world? And this group of people that I learned from, they were just the first to do this. And I think mm. once I started studying cultural apologetics more, then I found the sort of the more organized language for what it was that I'd been doing pretty much my whole life. <laughs> and that was seeing all of the connections and looking at the history of the music and then finding all of those points that are just slightly over to the left, one degree, and just going and getting them and making them an integrated whole. All right. You can check that out anywhere. We'll have the link in our show notes, and we will see you all next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.